Welcome to the Ben Dice COC podcast, where we make content for those who are seeking to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you. Good morning, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lexi. And we're disciples in the Bend International Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we pursue passion through the book of 1 Peter. This is our pursuit of refining our zeal and suffering as we seek to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Passion in the original Latin meant suffering for that which must be endured. Quite simply, you suffer for what you're passionate for. And Peter, of all people, was equipped to tell us about this. He's the most quoted disciple in the Gospels, the disciple whom Jesus is recorded talking to the most. Peter witnessed the passion of Jesus and his willingness to suffer for the sins of humanity. Be sure to hit the button below and subscribe to our channel to continue in this series with us and view more of our online content as we pursue passion. Thank you. Good morning, family. Or evening for me, but still drinking coffee. Always a, a delight, uh, a joy, an honor to serve the church, and also during this time, social distancing film in the evening, the, the night before a, a Sunday morning Zoom service. So I thank you all for, for being on either the YouTube premiere or the Zoom call, however you're tuning in, however you're supporting us, it, it, wherever you're living, if that's in Bend, Oregon, or elsewhere, thanks for watching with us today. Thanks for being in touch with us and encouraging us. You know, right now we're going through our Pursuit of Passion series. And this is a passion for Jesus Christ, to, to not only love Him, but suffer for Him, to, to walk as He walked, share in His sufferings, and Peter was a guy who knew how to do that. Today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. And last time we talked about having, needing really, reasons to hope being prepared to give a reason for our hope, our hope in His grace. And Peter gives us so many reasons for hope, leading to a transformation, a change in our, our mindset, a change in our emotions, a change in our conduct, leading to holiness. But if that the motivation doesn't work out for you, Peter gives us another great motivation today. And that motivation is fear. You know, for our church locally, for, for us nationally, even globally, with a pandemic, with social unrest going on, there are many reasons to hope, and also many reasons to fear. These are very powerful emotions, but it's by bringing out the healthiest part, the, the balance of both of these emotions, that we can bring out the best within ourselves. We can be motivated with the balance of the two for holy living. So let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, in sequence, the three imperatives that Peter presents right here are to hope in the grace, to live a holy life, and to live and conduct yourself in fear. 
that everything else is filling, it is supporting those three imperatives. You know, first let's talk about that holiness. Holiness, you know, how can we comprehend the ways of God? Be holy as He is holy. It's to be set apart. It's a non-conformity to the world. It's to be an exile, totally different than the way the world wants us to be. The, the way our forefathers may have handed things down to us. It's to be totally new, different, set apart in the family of God. And God's holiness, it's glorious, but it's also powerful. It's not exactly safe to be near this God who is all holy, all powerful, especially if we come to him with our sin. It's kind of like there's this epic bike jump behind my house. See, this, this jump is pretty awesome. And it would be, it'd be gnarly to, to shred this and actually land it up there on that other end, going through this dip and going off that ramp, maybe doing a backflip. It'd be totally righteous. It'd be cool. But I would probably die. And because of that, my own fear of heights, I'm going to conduct myself in fear. And I'm not going to go down this jump on my bike. Even though it's totally awesome, I'm totally fearful of it. And so the same thing with God's holiness. It should induce within us a reverence, a deep respect, even a fear for this holiness. Now, God is absolutely good. He is a good father to us, but it, he isn't necessarily safe for everyone and everything. His holiness, that's within his nature. Man, why even try to be holy as God is holy? How are we ever going to live up to that? Well, we do so and we're motivated to do so because we have a hope in His grace. At the same time, we, we have a fearful motivation because we have a Father who judges impartially. We can't just say, well, well my daddy's the judge, he's going to let me off the hook. No, uh, he judges impartially. He, he doesn't look at race. He doesn't look at status, at class. He doesn't look at your ethnicity. Uh, where you are in life, he judges impartially. Uh, that should uh, make one fearful. And he judges us off of our works, not the intent of our hearts, not what we're thinking up in our minds, but off of our conduct, by our deeds, this impartial Father will judge us. And this is an, an important theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. God doesn't discriminate. He, he judges accordingly. And, and this fear runs throughout the Bible. This motivation of fear leading us to, to caution, leading us to wisdom, leading us to holy conduct. A, a few verses to share. In Hebrews chapter 10, it said, is it, a, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Deuteronomy 5.29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever a fear leading to keeping the commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. You know, in all these passages, it cites fear as a motivation for obeying the commands of God. It's not the only motivation, but it's one that we shouldn't totally omit. And sometimes we try to totally omit fear from our emotions and motivations, and, and I think that's wrong. I actually think we need a healthy balance of it. You know, my relationship with my own father, I've always revered him, respected him, always wanted to make him 
proud. I've always wanted to honor him because he, he raised me, he, he put me through college. I've always wanted to, to prove myself to him. And, and that's probably carried over into my spiritual life where I revere my Heavenly Father. I, I want to be like my Father as much as possible in order to make Him proud. And, and there's some fear in that. There's some fear that I might not get it right. There's some fear that I may not be conducting myself properly. But it's a healthy fear that leads me to a proper conduct. You know, the common saying when it comes to fear is that at the head level, we go into fight or flight. And I would argue that we need to go into fight. We need to face those fears. We need to understand those fears. We need to work with those fears. When we go into flight mode, we tend to overcompensate. My own fears, I can fear loneliness, rejection. I can fear commitment, all sorts of fears. And I shouldn't run from those. At the same time, I shouldn't just freeze. Have you ever frozen in the face of fear? This one time I was walking the streets in Las Vegas and it was a super windy day. There's these two poles holding up this banner and the wind was really rocking it. I could tell it was probably going to fall and beneath it were all these, it was like a street party. All these tables were set up and people were eating. But I just stood there and watched it and said, yep, oh yeah, that baby's going to fall. And sure enough, it started falling. I could have grabbed it. I could have anchored down the sandbags better. I could have done something. But in fear, I was paralyzed. I did nothing. And I watched it fall onto this crowd of people. Luckily, no one was hurt. But I chose not to act on that fear. I chose to be paralyzed. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable with our fear. We lose our edge around it. We lose our caution around it. You see it in the, you see it in the news all the time. Uh, lion tamers and other people who work with wild or aggressive animals. They might be great for a lifetime, but then there's one bad day where they get a little too comfortable. They're not exercising enough caution or enough fear, and that animal might fight back. And then we get the headline for it. See, we can't get too comfortable to where we just negate run or are paralyzed in the fear. We need it to help us keep our edge. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, almost every time an angel appears to a human, they say, oh no, I'm unworthy. Oh, please spare me. And the angels say, don't be afraid. Now, I doubt that the human just did a 180 in their heart and said, oh, okay, yeah, well, hey, would you like a glass of water? I don't think we see that in any of the scriptures where they just negated their fear. I think they continued in that fear. And because of that, because they were able to have courage, they were able to have hope along with that fear. They could hear out the angels calling and some truly awesome things happened with what those angels brought. So what does it look like when, when we're dealing with our fear to then go into the fight mode? Well, it, it sharpens our senses. It prepares us for greatness. It prepares us for the fight. You know, when it comes to our, our passion, our calling in life, so many, because of fear, are looking for a path that has the least amount of resistance. They're looking for a path that's comfortable. They're, they're looking for a path that is certain and, and predictable and acceptable, rather than facing their fear, or rather than being willing to fail, or rather than being willing to innovate. Now, I encourage you, don't just repress or deny that fear, but remain faithful to it. Explore it. 
If you deny it, I think it's actually a lot of wear and tear on our calling and on our souls. To know that there's this great thing we wanted to try and accomplish, or this great calling, or this great purpose in our life, but rather than fighting when it came to our fear, we fleed. We don't want to have that inside of us. So if you're going to contend with your fear, you do need hope. The psalmist says this, Psalm 147 verse 11, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Fear and hope, both explored, both balanced, both motivations that we can pursue in pleasing the Lord. Famous philosopher and mathematician Descartes wrote countless essays about this subject and he had this to say on the balance of hope and fear. When hope is so strong that it altogether drives out fear, its nature changes and it becomes complacency or confidence. And when we are certain that what we desire will come to pass, even though we go on wanting it to come to pass, we nonetheless cease to be agitated by the passion of desire which caused us to look forward to the outcome with anxiety. Likewise, when fear is so extreme that it leaves no room at all for hope, it is transformed into despair. And this despair, representing the thing as impossible, extinguishes desire altogether. For desire bears only on possible things. See, the idea that the object of our desire is likely arouses hope within us. The idea that it's unlikely arouses fear within us. But both motivate us towards that object of desire. It, it fuels our passion. It can fuel our conduct, our holy living. Descartes argued that neither emotion, hope or fear, could ever accompany passion without leaving some room for the other. It, they both have to come into play. You know, the best part of fear is that it teaches us what we're afraid to lose. And the best part of hope is that once we know what we're afraid to lose, we can go about nurturing it, protecting it, keeping it safe. Entire presidential campaigns are run on these motivations. Uh, the fear of the other, fear of the unknown, or, or hope for the future. They're powerful. You know, sometimes fear is the prompt, but hope is the way. Fear is about trying to survive something, but hope reminds you of why you're trying to survive it in the first place. You know, when my daughter was born just six weeks ago, Sersha, there was a lot of hope and a lot of fear. There were known costs that we counted and unknown costs that were even more scary. No one had an answer at times. We couldn't let our hope lead us to make blind decisions, but we also couldn't allow our fear to, to paralyze us from raising Sersha, to paralyze us from acting and making decisions as she was born. I look back on that hospital day and so many of those fears were overblown. If I could go back, I'd do them all over again because they were just blips on the radar. And I made it through those fears and we made it through those hopes. And some of the stuff that I thought would be really bad wasn't actually that bad. I'm thankful that I had a hope that allowed me to explore the fear. I didn't just freeze and I didn't just run. But we were able to make decisions for our daughter with a balance of hope and fear, protecting her and nurturing her. You know, as a church, we're coming up on a one-year anniversary. We've had our own baby of this church planting. And many disciples came out here with a purpose, with a calling, with a passion. And perhaps that hope wasn't fully realized within this first year. Perhaps some of us were a little paralyzed with the fear. Perhaps some of us did flee rather than fight. 
But we have an opportunity now to, to press into that and explore it, both the hope and the fear when it comes to our calling and our passion. You know, it, it says right there in First Peter that God calls us to a great purpose. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And verse 17, and if you call on him as father, you see, as we call on the Lord, he also has a calling for our lives. It, it isn't just calling on the name of the Lord and then we, we never change our conduct. No, he has a calling for each of us as disciples. Biblically, we're called to many things. We get our modern day word vocation from calling, to be called to something. We're called to a ministry of reconciliation. We're called to be sanctified. We're called to bring others to Jesus. We're called to obedience, holy living, to, to service and good works. You know, let's live up to our calling. Live up to what we've already obtained. We don't want to continue in quiet desperation. We want to pursue our passion. And God has a very high calling for our lives. He intended for us to, to live out so much more than just showing up for, for an hour on a Sunday morning, but to have a daily relationship with Him, to bring others into that relationship. The original calling that Jesus gave to Peter, become a fisher of men, go and make disciples. Uh, many of us have that calling. It, it never goes away throughout our whole lives. But some of us, as we mature, we take on other callings in life. And our purposes and our passions become even more diverse. We take on children. We take on homes that we have to take care of. We take on entire spiritual families within the church. And our callings become even more diverse as we build up one another with worship, with our talents, with our passions. Though we never lose that calling to make disciples, uh, we can add on to that calling throughout our life. You know, for us as individuals, but also a church as a whole, continuing in that balance, we need to make sure we don't exaggerate our fear, but also not overestimate our hope. Sometimes when we're too motivated by hope alone, we can set ourselves up with expectations that can be very discouraging. Few callings, ventures, businesses are, are an overnight success. And for the ones that are successful, if you ask them, it's because they experienced many failures. It's because they endured many trials. It's a stubborn persistence, not an overnight success. But it's in our human nature, we want the quick success. We, we want to go forward with full hope and see immediate results. On the other hand, if we're too motivated by fear, we're never going to take those risks. We're never going to take those leaps to step out on faith to forward our ministry or our calling. We're going to be too paralyzed to take those leaps. You see, if you have too much fear, you'll never be able to take those calculated leaps, those next steps to, to get your ministry, your calling up and off the ground. But on the other hand, if you have too much hope, you'll either be perpetually disappointed with those expectations or entirely overconfident. You need that proper fear and hope, that caution, that brings us to our passage in Scripture that says we have a judge who judges impartially, a good father who judges impartially. And as scary as that verse is, you know, he judges us impartially, conduct yourself in fear. Man, it comes with so much comfort. It's couched with such assurance. First, that we have a good father, and second, that he's ransomed us with the blood of his son. It, it gives two reasons for hope on either side of that statement to conduct ourselves in fear. Verse 18 says that we were ransomed. 
by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, more valuable than, than silver or gold. Man, God gave up everything, ransomed for us, how much He cares about us. Which of us would give up our own son or daughter to ransom another person? Man, when this selfless ransom comes up in verse 18, God giving up His own son, it reminds me of the most famous kidnapping and ransom in modern American history because it was a very selfish kidnapping and a very selfish ransom. And that's the famous one of J. Paul Getty's grandson. J. Paul Getty, he was a, an oil industrialist. In the 50s, he was named America's richest private citizen. I believe later in the 60s, he was named uh, the richest private citizen in the world. He had an estimated net worth of $6 billion when he died or over $21 billion adjusted for inflation. Yet with all of this money, richest man in the world, he was incredibly frugal, especially when it came to the ransom of his grandson. At first, the kidnappers, they issued a ransom note demanding $17 million, or about $100 million adjusted for inflation today. But he refused to pay it, and a lot of time passed, so they they chopped off a piece of his grandson's hair and they chopped his ear off and they started mutilating him and sending pieces of him in the mail saying, hey, you can have bits and pieces or you can have the whole grandson. He kept refusing to pay any money. Finally, he agreed to pay $3.2 million and come up with that amount or about $20 million adjusted for inflation today. Two million of that was the max amount that he could write off on his taxes for, for ransom, for a kidnapping. He wrote it off, it was a benefit to him. And to make it up to come to 3.2 million, the other million, his son and the rest of the family had to pay him back for with interest. It was a loan to the family. So at the end of the day, he, he didn't really pay a cent towards his grandson, he actually made money off of the kidnapping. That's how frugal he was, that's how selfish he was. Man who had all the money in the world but refused to save his own family. Man, God is just the opposite, the exact polar opposite. God has everything in the world and he'd give it all up for you. You see, we, we hear about that ransom and we think, man, how selfish could that guy be? But how selfish are we when we're the ones being ransomed by God? God, who, who would be willing to give up everything, sell everything, and did, gave up his own son, a blood sacrifice, to ransom us. But how selfish are we? It, the illustration would be something like this. If, if a father was to sell everything he had to pay the ransom for his daughter who was kidnapped, and then it came time for the exchange and he was going to give the captors the money, and right when he gave them the money, the daughter said, thanks, dad, have a nice life. And she took off with her captor and said, I'm going to shack up with him. Man, imagine how betrayed that father would feel. Imagine how, how selfish that daughter must have been to refuse the ransom, to refuse everything her father had sacrificed. But see, that's an illustration of our selfish heart. Though we have a good father, Though we've been ransomed with the blood of His Son, man, almost on a daily basis, when we choose sin, we want to take off with that captor. And that, that selfishness is exactly what we should fear when it comes to revering and fearing the Lord. We should fear what we do to damage that relationship. We should fear 
losing intimacy with him. Man, we should fear that he's given us this calling, this surpassing worth that we're called to, this relationship with him. But we should fear how willing and selfish we are sometimes to give that up, to not face the fear, to not continue in the hope, but to go the other way towards comfort, complacency. That's where we need a holy fear in the Lord. Holy fear is different from normal fear. See, unholy fear runs away from the judge, goes into flight, runs towards comfort and conformity. But holy fear runs to the judge. It sharpens the senses, goes into fight mode, is willing to fight for this relationship with God, to be cautious for this relationship with God. Holy fear runs to the judge because holy fear has a hope set fully in God's grace. Holy fear trembles, is fearful at losing intimacy, at insulting this ransom that we've been given. Fears discarding this ransom, treating this ransom of infinite worth as trash. Do you have a holy fear or an unholy fear? Does it send you away from God or does it propel you towards God? Does it motivate you to fulfill your calling? Does it motivate you to maintain this intimacy, to, to not insult this ransom? We need to make sure that we're pursuing this holy fear with a hope set in the grace. Our calling depends on it. Our passion depends on it. If we're going to make it in the long run, if we're going to face that judge someday, it depends on us having a healthy balance of hope and fear. Both of these motivations. The philosopher Kierkegaard said this about exploring our fear. For believe me, the secret for harvesting from existence, the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment is to live dangerously. You've been made tame, predictable, acceptable perhaps, or likable, in order to repress your true potential. Live dangerously, explore that fear, and do so with hope. And it has the potential to save you if you remain faithful to it. Fear also has the potential to destroy you. If you repress it, if you ignore it, if you go the opposite direction away from God, it'll tear you up on the inside. Same thing with our calling, same thing with our passion. We don't want to subdue these things. We want to move into them, explore them, live dangerously, as Kierkegaard said. Guys, that's our calling. It, it, to fulfill our passion, we have to have a holy fear. We have to live dangerously in this pursuit. Thank you. I hope that we can all discuss this, pray on it, continue to, to contemplate what fears we're running away from and what fears we're pursuing in our holy living. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bend ICOC podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening with us today. If you have, be sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Thank you. I love you. I love you.